welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the often hidden and scandalous side of American history. Uh, not always American history, but mostly American history. Um, we are wrapping up in this last week of March, Women's History Month. As I say always, every month is Women's History Month because women's history is American history. But in March, we take a little extra time to really dig in on incredible women. So uh, we were just marveling before we turned on the recording that this month has gone so fast. Um, talking about all these incredible women. So um, of course, we're going to keep women in the podcast well after Women's History Month, but it's been fun to have this focus. Uh, if you are a new listener, <laughs> I'm Becca. And we I'm are Rebecca. The Rebecca's. The Rebecca's. <laughs> and we are here uh, today to share with you about a woman that Rebecca has been wanting to put on the podcast since really day one. So I know she's very excited. But before we say who it is, just a reminder, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know we're running a special promotion right now. We cannot do this podcast without our patrons. Our patrons have kept us going through the worst months of the pandemic. For us, tourism is still very much just barely coming back. It's still a very difficult time for us, a challenging time. And so our patrons have truly like kept the lights on, kept this podcast going, kept us going just as individuals. Uh, and we're so appreciative to them. But for this podcast, to continue on, we definitely need some more patrons. And so we are trying to reach our patron goal. We're really, really close. We just need a few more of you listeners, if you haven't already, to consider becoming a patron. You can go as little as $3 a month. And each of the patron levels come with goodies. You can get books and special episodes and a special discount in our shop, which is going to reopen uh, this month. So there's lots of really cool things you can get for being a patron. And if we reach our patron goal, we are going to do a special series all about first ladies. We have never really gone in depth on a first lady in this podcast, and we will do a special series of bonus first lady episodes. So this will be in addition to all our regular episodes and our patrons will get to decide who we're going to talk about. So you will not only get amazing episodes, but you get to help us decide who we're going to talk about. Yes, I'm very excited. Uh, we want to talk, give us permission, please, to talk about all the first ladies. And you can pick which first ladies, and it's going to be really good. So, of course, so you can I'm always excited. find the link to um, our Patreon page in our show notes uh, or on our social media. But we want to thank our existing patrons. And if you've been thinking about maybe becoming a patron, this would be a great time. So, with that said, Rebecca, are you ready to unveil who we are talking about today? Somebody I know you're very, very excited about. I'm so excited. Um, I feel like if they're clicking on the link for the pod, they probably already know since it'll be in the, the description. But I have been excited to talk about this particular person since literally day one. We're going to talk about Frances Perkins. And Frances Perkins is so much an unsung hero in American history that the more I dug into her, the more like shocked I was that she's not better known. There are so many interesting little tidbits uh, and things that she's really responsible for. And I'm really excited to talk about Frances Perkins. So she also has like the mother of all pop culture references, which we'll get to uh, a little bit later <laughs> on. Um, so yeah, Frances Perkins. Um, if this is going to be a lot about labor history, y'all, which is something that I know that both Becca and I are particularly interested and passionate about. Women's history is American history, but labor history is also American history. Uh, labor history is women's history. So this is really important. And Frances Perkins... <sighs> Man, she's at the forefront of so many new I'm just going to jump in as a little caveat and say, if in your mind, women didn't really start to go to work until after World War II, we are here to really blow that 
perception out because this is something I do run into on my tours and in conversations. We have this popular notion that women enter the workplace after World War II. Um, and that's not to say there isn't a boon in women going to work in the middle to late part of the 20th century. But, you know, women, especially women in certain socioeconomic classes, have always had to work and have always been part of the workforce. And that's really important to keep in mind, especially as we talk about Frances Perkins. So a little caveat there about sort of maybe changing our perceptions of when women were working in a workforce, not just, you know, working from home or at home. Yes, that is very important to mention. Frances Perkins, I feel like, and this is kind of based on her personality. Well, we're going to put a picture of her in the show notes so you can kind of see this in her picture. She's one of those quiet warriors that gets the job done and doesn't seek the credit for herself. And because of that, she's not really given almost any credit for the very real changes she has made to literally the lives of almost everybody listening to this podcast. So she's really super important. And she starts in Boston. She is born in Boston. She grows up there. She's going to be educated at Mount Holyoke. She graduates in 1902. Yay, women's colleges. We have one of the two of us in on this pod, not me, uh, as a graduate of a women's college. So and I will say, I did not colleges. go to Mount Holyoke, but you cannot throw a stone in women's history and like avoid an incredible woman who went to Mount Holyoke. Holyoke has bred some of the most important women in American history, just period, bar none. True story. True, true story. Uh, while she is at Mount Holyoke, she's going to discover progressive politics and suffrage, because this is, again, women don't have the vote yet. Uh, so she gets involved in both of those things. And after graduation, she teaches for a while. She gets a degree in economics, which from Columbia. So she settles in New York City, and it must have been extremely rare for a woman to get a degree in particularly economics uh, in the early 1900s. I'll just jump into and say, how many women have we talked about on this podcast where their academic interest is something else, economics or politics or rhetoric or whatever, but they start in education because that was one of the job paths available to women. And so this is by no means a denigration of education. It's so key and so important. And we have a deep love for teachers, but so many women, despite having an interest in wanting to work elsewhere, often begin in those careers in teaching because that was the job available. Yes, very much. She is going to be, in 1910, appointed the head of the New York City Office of the National Consumer League, uh, which uh, is going to give her statewide fame, sort of an activist, and uh, she's going to lobby with vigor for better working conditions and better working hours. She's also a part-time professor at a college in New York City. And this is the sort of beginning of the the uh, labor movement in the United States. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union has just been formed in 1909. There is a lot of outcry among progressives, including Perkins, about the really deplorable conditions that are existing in a lot of these tenements and workhouses uh, and things in not only Manhattan, but other places as well. Perkins obviously is focused on Manhattan at first, but this is not, Manhattan is not unique in so far as how late workers are treated. And then we're going to break, uh, do something a little unusual. We're going to break with her narrative uh, to take a detour. And she does come into the detour a little bit later on, but sort of down in the story. But we are going to detour to talk about something called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. 
The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire is, first of all, the Triangle Factory is the name of the factory. And a shirtwaist is, you can look it up, but if you're picturing like a woman's... We'll put a link in the show notes, too. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> but it's hard for us to show you one while we're recording. It, basically, you're picturing, this is 1911. You're picturing women's garments in those days. You're picturing a button-down shirt with the poof sleeves that gathers at the waist. That's what you're picturing. That is correct. When you look it up online, you're going to see some very high-end shirtwaist, ones that have lasted for over 100 years. But shirtwaists are one of the very few items, or very first items, that can be mass-produced and sold the way that we sell clothes now. So these are made to wear, they're sold in stores, and they're sold very cheaply. Trouble is, if you're selling something cheaply, you have to make it even cheaper. This is gonna, we're gonna get upset at this, you guys. Get ready. Um, so the Shirtwaist Factory is in Lower Manhattan, something called the Ash Building that is in fact still there. It's called the Brown Building today. It's right off of Washington Square on the NYU campus now. The Triangle Factory operates in the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of the building. And the fire happens on a Saturday right as they're getting ready to quit. Yes, they work on a Saturday. They even get to leave early at five. And as they're getting ready to leave, the fire starts. What they think happened is somebody didn't put out a cigarette properly and it spreads because shirtwaists are made of cotton, which provides a lot of accelerant. And it's also worth mentioning, and this is the part that really just drives me insane. The factory owners who are not the heroes of this story, they have locked these women into the factory. They're mostly women. There are a few men in skilled positions, but most of the factory employs immigrant women, young women, uh, women who don't speak English as a first language and don't speak it very well. So we've got a lot of women locked in and a lot of flammable material. I just say the reason they employ so many of these women is they want to make these things cheap. They want to sell them cheaply. And these are literally the people they can pay the least amount of money to. So this is absolutely an exploitation. Uh, and this has been going on for years, just two years prior to this fire, there had been a huge uprising. 20,000 female shirtwaist factory employees had marched in the streets in New York, striking against what they called sweatshop conditions. They complained about being locked in, being in an unsafe working environment, being paid pennies to work with dangerous equipment and in dangerous situations. Um, and those strikes had been kind of newsworthy. There had been tiny little concessions made by some individual factories, but these women um, two years prior had said, we don't feel safe on the job. And that must've been incredibly hard for them to do or, or uh, brave of them to do. These were, like you said, so many immigrant women, so many young women, women who were coming in from rural areas, who were desperate for work, who needed this job. So it's important to, as, as you're about to get into the part that's really upsetting, to remember these are women who've already been deeply exploited for their labor. Yes, and they've been locked in. They've been locked into the factory for two reasons. The owners are worried about theft, not just theft of materials, like they'd actually take a shirtwaist home and sell it, but more importantly, theft of their time. So in those days, you don't have the right to a 15-minute break. You have a lunch break, and that's it. And they had to fight for the lunch break, FYI. And factory owners want you to work while you're at work, which is not an unreasonable expectation, I suppose. But when you're locking someone in there for 12 hours because you don't want them to stop working, that's not great. So the factory starts, and it's, it's very complicated. The factory is worse on the ninth floor. It actually starts on the eighth floor, but is worse on the ninth floor. 
And uh, the heroes of this story are going to be the elevator operators who heroically keep going up and down as long as they are able until the elevator cables literally give out. But some women, the one of the exits is blocked by the fire. The other exit is blocked because they're locked in. The women cannot get out. Some of them go to the fire escape uh, and try to get on the roof. But the fire escape, the building owners have been allowed to not keep it up to code. So it buckles and eventually drops with 20 women to their death. Some women jump out the window. It's really terrible. And the firemen, New York's finest, do arrive, but in those days, they didn't have the kind of technology they got today. The, ho- the water only goes up seven floors from the hoses, which is not great when the fire's on the eighth and ninth floor. They have nets to try to catch the women who are jumping, but women tear right through the nets. It's horrific. 146 people die. 23 men and 123 women. And it is the worst industrial disaster in the history of New York City. One of the worst industrial disasters in the history of this country. And Frances Perkins is involved in this because she actually had been visiting a friend on the other side of Washington Square that afternoon. They had heard the fire engines and all the commotion, and she had gone over to kind of investigate. And so she gets there for the sort of end of this drama and witnesses these women jumping to their deaths. And this is going to mark her for the rest of her life. She never really forgets this. And some of the women in the days after are going to be so badly damaged that they can't be identified. They're buried in mass graves. It's really, really terrible. And the Triangle Factory is one of those things in American history that just fascinates me because it's such a like pivotal moment in the development of American labor in ways that I don't even think we talk about enough, partly because the people who die were mostly women. So... Frances Perkins is affected. This is going to be sort of the galvanizing moment in her life. She is going to immediately get involved in the push for better working conditions. She starts lobbying a man named Al Smith, who at that time is in the New York State Legislature, but eventually is going to be governor. And then he actually runs for president himself. They are going to push for a bunch of labor-related legislation. And had the Triangle Factory fire only influenced Frances Perkins, it would still be enormously influential. But it influences an entire generation of people who see this, who are affected by this. Uh, This is going to galvanize a lot of support for the International Garment Worker, Ladies Garment Workers Union. Uh, Lots of people, people like Rosa Luxemburg, who are going to become very like active in uh, labor unions and sort of pushing for better working conditions. Frances Perkins herself in the aftermath of this is going to push for what's called the 54-hour bill, which caps the number of hours women and children could work at 54 hours. Just a note, women and children capped at 54 hours. I also would like to mention, just to kind of contextualize slightly, that when this fire happens and the aftermath happens, we don't even have a Department of Labor yet as a country. We don't have a Secretary of Labor until Woodrow Wilson becomes president in 1913. So when we talk about how young the labor movement is, yes, there have been labor organizations and trade groups going back in the 19th century. We'd had pockets of labor activity, but it's really this early part of the 20th century where the labor movement is building into a strong political force and one that's including women, it's including immigrants, it's including workers of color, and it's starting to actually galvanize to have some some political sway. So, you know, when this 
disaster happens, there isn't a labor department to investigate. There isn't a secretary of labor that can talk to the American people and say, this is what we're going to do. That work has to be done by individuals like Francis Perkins who are spurred by this event. And of course, by many, many other labor activists as well, who we're obviously not talking about at the moment. But just to keep in mind, like we are still so young in labor at this point in the country. And so Francis Perkins is going to leave her job and immediately on the recommendation of Theodore Roosevelt, former president of the United States, she's going to become the executive secretary for the Committee on Safety of the New York of New York City, of the city. And she's going to lobby for this 54-hour workweek bill in the state legislature. And in doing so, she actually lobbies a lot of state legislators personally, including one named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That name should seem familiar to you. She actually befriends FDR very early on in his political career, and they form a partnership that will last the rest of his life. She is going to lobby, lobby. She lobbies him. He votes for it. There are going to be a number of labor-related positions that she takes in the intervening few years. So she is going to be very involved throughout the rest of the teens and into the 20s in sort of a lot of labor relations. She eventually holds the, including the, the Wagner Factory Investigating Committee. So she's going to actually investigate factories to make sure that they're, what their conditions are and make sure they're adhering to labor practices and things like that. And this will be really important because even after what happens at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, one of the factory owners would be fined two years later for still locking factory doors um, and locking his workers in, even though that's a violation of what has become New York law at that point. So you have to have these investigative committees because even with the disaster, the bad press, a trial for manslaughter, essentially, there are still factory workers who have no qualms about locking in these workers uh, or putting them in very dangerous, unsafe conditions. So it's I think important to note that even though there's a lot of change that's spurred by the creation of these committees and these positions and these investigations, it's necessary because the employers can't be held responsible on their own. No, that's kind of what she, her big, one of her big causes is that you can't trust these employers to do this on their own. You have to continue to send in investigations and people to make sure that they're doing what the law requires them to do because left on their own devices, they're going to try to take the cheapest way out and exploit whatever labor they can, cut whatever corners they can. And so that's why her investigations become as pivotal as they are. She eventually is going to become a state Senate confirmed commissioner uh, of the industrial code. The commissioner comes with a, a salary she actually ends up becoming one of the highest paid state employees in New York. Fellow commissioners consider her work to be invaluable. One of her, I love this, uh, one of the fellow commissioners, James Lynch, calls her contributions invaluable and says that, quote, from the work which Miss Perkins has accomplished, I am convinced that more women ought to be placed in high positions throughout the State Department. Which, yay, James Lynch. Thanks. We like you. In 1929, what happens in 1929, Becca? Someone gets elected governor. (laughs) Yes. So Franklin D. Roosevelt is going to continue his political career uh, and he's going to become governor of New York. And at this point, you know, as Rebecca mentioned, he and Francis Perkins have formed a working relationship, a friendship, but also a political partnership. And so he is going to essentially create a new position within his state government for an industrial commissioner. So essentially on a state level, like a secretary of labor, somebody who can really look at a broad scale of labor, not just factory work,
work, not just a particular industry, but to look at industrial work as a whole. And this is going to give Frances Perkins a lot of power. This is a brand new position. She basically gets to write the book on what this job entails. And because she has the support of the governor, uh, FDR is sort of happy to give her free reign. She is able to do a lot of incredible things. And she is going to really push New York as a state to the forefront of like every important labor reform that we think of in the early part of the 20th century. Having a more reasonable work week. Um, 54 hours is so crazy to me, <laughs> but to actually have these reduced work week and understandably these are still just for women uh, and children, but it's still, I think, important that they're acknowledging that you cannot work people to, the, to their death. You cannot work people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She's going to push for more factory investigations, as you were saying, knowing that the only way to protect workers is to hold employers responsible by constantly investigating and levying fines when they do not hold up to standards. She's going to push for a minimum wage. We weirdly just keep doing these podcasts that relate to things in the current conversation, not on purpose, I promise, but history repeats itself and there's nothing new under the sun in history. And minimum wage is going to be a really big deal in New York. Uh, and they're going to be one of the first states to initiate a minimum wage. Also unemployment insurance, which this is not a nationwide thing yet. This is very, very new. But the idea that employers should pay a little bit so that when people are out of work, they can get a little bit. Um, that's sort of the idea. Also very important child labor laws. I think it's easy sometimes to think that child labor is a 19th century thing, not a 20th century thing. There's still very much child labor. And then worker safety. These are all really important things, things that we often take for granted today in a workplace, but things that this is just New York at this point. These are not uh, across the nation, but they're happening because Frances Perkins is making them happen. So she is really going to just push for a whole new reimagining of what it's like to be an American worker. And she's able to do that thanks to really the support of Franklin D. Roosevelt and him putting her in that position. And one of the things that was interesting to me when I was doing the research for this, because he's elected and then the stock market crashes. Yeah. <laughs> and so at first I thought, oh, well, obviously, like, she could do all these stuff because he was distracted by other things. And then I thought, no, no, no. Like, if there's ever a time when a factory owner's like, look, it, I got to maximize my profits because we're in a depression. This is it. And she's able to push back on all of this and say, hey, no, even in a depression, workers deserve to be treated with dignity. And they deserve some sort of unemployment compensation in case the, the worst happens. They deserve workers' comp in case they're injured on the job. And there's, a, you know, a standard of minimum wage that you can't fall below. Child labor laws. Like if you wanted to get a job when you were 15 and they sent you home at 10 o'clock at night, this is why. Because we fought for child labor standards uh, that people can't work under a certain age. Um, Frances Perkins really makes... New York the put it puts it at the forefront of a lot of progressive reforms in terms of labor in terms of the dignity of work and union recognition and then uh, her sort of pal uh, her friend Franklin Roosevelt goes national uh, <laughs> <laughs> he goes big time he gets elected president and one of the first things he does is call Frances Perkins into a meeting and says, hey, I want you to come to Washington with me to be the Secretary of Labor. I'm going to jump in here just to paint a picture of where Perkins is in her life at this point. She is in her early 50s. So she is not a young woman. Um, she's, she's in her early 50s. She has, throughout her time in politics and labor, kept a notebook 
that she called notes on a male mind. And she would literally take notes on what it was like to work with male colleagues. And she quickly identified what they responded to and what they didn't respond to so that she could be more effective in her work. So as FDR is approaching her about joining his cabinet, about becoming this cabinet appointee, she has adapted a very specific look, which is sort of no nonsense, black and navy suits, very little makeup. Uh, she liked a tri-corner hat, which I think is very stylish. She was very reserved. Um, one person described her as sounding like she was always swallowing a press release, like just very quiet and to the point. But she wrote somebody and basically said that women in politics were accepted if they reminded men of their mothers. So this is what she goes in with the mindset of, that if she is going to take what she accomplished in New York and get this done on a national scale, this is how she's going to play the game. And I just think it's important to note that she is not naive about what it's like to be a woman in politics at this time, and that she is very calculated in the way she has presented herself. She very much is. And she knows she seems to think that the best way to get stuff done is to sort of be under the radar and not make a big splash. And so she remains very and I feel like this was kind of her personality anyway, but she kind of just is she's not an attention grabber. FDR asks her to be her, the Secretary of Labor, and she basically says, okay, but here are the things I'm going to push you on. And she gives him a whole laundry list of the program, labor program she's going to fight for. And he says, okay, let's do it. And with very few exceptions, he backs her completely uh, when they come to Washington. She is going to become the very first woman to serve in a president's cabinet, which means that she's also the first woman to be in the presidential line of succession. Yay. She's only the fourth secretary of labor, man or woman. So the labor department is very new. And to tie the pod back to like our one of our very first episodes, by the way, the person who introduced the bill for the labor department was uh, Senator William Bora of Idaho, who was the um, illicit boyfriend of Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Because you can't go too far in this period without running into like 15 Roosevelts. Anyway, <laughs> she comes to Washington and... And she, like, does the work, gets it done. She is enormously influential. She is one of only two of FDR's cabinet secretaries to stay with him for his entire term. So she is Secretary of Labor for 12 years. And the joke was that FDR was a mean man to make a woman stay in labor for 12 years. Yuck, 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 yuck. I know. Uh, she plays a key role in writing new, the New Deal legislation. So she's very involved in that. She's going to increase minimum wage. She helps create the Civilian Conservation Corps and a number of other uh, worker-related uh, ideas to get people back to work. Uh, she dr also drafts legislation that's going to become the Social Security Act in 1935, which is perhaps the thing that she should be most famous for, since that's something that's still with us and still extremely important to protect workers, to make sure that they have guaranteed retirement and things of that nature. This is going to be sort of her like shining moment in 1935, creating the Social Security Act. She is uh, very, she stays with FDR for the whole 12 years. And then Truman wants to create his own cabinet, which you can kind of understand once he becomes the president. And so she, her tenure uh, as Secretary of Labor ends on June 30th, 1945. So 12 years is a long time to be doing the same job. After 
her stint in cabinet, she does not slow down particularly. Uh, she Truman is going to immediately appoint her to the Civil Service Commission, where she starts speaking out against sexual harassment, which they didn't have that term yet. That term's not coined until the 70s, but that's what she doesn't like. They don't call it that, but she says that there are so few qualified secretaries in the federal government because the government officials seem to require that their secretaries be attractive. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not all they required. Insert your eye roll here, guys. Um, Yes, so that's one of the things that she does. She really says that the stenographers and secretaries, maybe they, you know, they don't all need to be conventionally attractive. Maybe they could be good at their job, too. Uh, She is going to teach at the New York School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell until her death in 1965 at the age of 85 which is crazy. And it also is also worth mentioning her personal life. Um, she's married. She marries in 1916, an economist, Paul Caldwell Wilson. Uh, and she keeps her maiden name because not to affect his career. He's a secretary to the mayor and she doesn't want her labor activity to affect his career. And so she actually is going to have to sue in court to keep her maiden name. Yeah. She's considered when she becomes uh, part of the commission right after the Triangle Factory fire in the later teens and 20s, she is going to be branded a radical because she has kept her own name. So that's not because of her policies, but because she's kept her own last name. Obviously, she must be a radical. And you're listening to two women who've both gotten married and both kept their own last name. So this is like, I feel deep kinship with Frances Perkins about this. They have a daughter, Susanna, in 1916. And then her husband, very soon after that, starts, uh, he has bouts of mental illness. And it seems to be bipolar disorder, but he's going to be frequently institutionalized for decades. And that is another thing that she sort of has to advocate for. Uh, She advocates for her husband. She's also raising her daughter. And she's also doing all of these groundbreaking activism and and sort of labor relations at the same time. It's really kind of an amazing juggling act. Uh, By the time that she's in cabinet, by the time that FDR has been elected president in 1933, her husband is going to be institutionalized pretty much for the rest of his life. He escapes a couple times, but he's going to be largely like incapacitated. And do you want to talk about Marion Harriman Robinson? Yes, indeed. So, I mean, I just was contemplating as you were talking about her marriage and just Frances Perkins throughout her life. I mean, she is such a public figure, and yet she was so reticent about ever putting anything out there that wasn't about the movement, about the reforms. You know, she was very careful about what she said, very careful about how she played the game, as it were. Although I was, um, in my research, found a great call where she kind of got really worked up in the middle of the night and decided to call the CEO of General Motors one night uh, and really just give him, like, a piece of her mind. And so she calls him in the middle of the night and basically calls him a scoundrel and a skunk for not meeting the union's demands. And then she later says, you don't deserve to be counted among decent men. You'll go to hell when you die. 
which is pretty harsh stuff. So just thinking about, you know, this woman who was so reserved, who had one little documented outburst in all the kind of biographies that are written about her. And here she is also struggling with mental illness with her spouse at a time where there just isn't a good understanding of this. There aren't the medical resources that are needed. So she has to be an advocate while also sort of balancing how much of her private life is going to be before the press. So I, I just think what an incredible balance that was she she had to strike and to to be able to do that and to have to do it that way in that time period, how hard that must have been for her. So it is maybe not too surprising that she does have another very close relationship in her life with a woman named Mary Harriman Rumsey. She was the founder of the Junior League. I know many of my friends and colleagues are members of the Junior League, the Junior League, a very important women's civic organization. So Mary Harriman Rumsey is the founder of this league that I think a lot of us probably associate with like pearls and white gloves. She is the sister of a very good friend of Franklin D. Roosevelt, one of his sort of political confidants and allies, Averill Harriman. So she's very much in this FDR inner circle, this kind of like Roosevelt gang. And that's how she and Frances Perkins meet. They become very, very close. This happens to kind of pick up right around the time that Perkins' husband is being institutionalized, is is being hospitalized. And so, you know, you can imagine a friendship or a bond or a kinship kind of coming out during this time. And they are just going to stay very, very close until Mary Rumsey dies in 1934. They lived together. They were essentially each other's benefactors um, and beneficiaries uh, in every sort of way you could be at that time. There's a lot of speculation about what that relationship was like, obviously, because Frances Perkins was so tight-lipped about her personal life. We have no outward confirmation from her or from Rumsey, but certainly among people who knew them, it seems that this relationship was certainly a very emotionally intimate one, uh, if not something more. Yeah, it does seem that she, I would imagine part of the reason that she keeps this quiet is because she doesn't want it to affect the real reforms that she's trying to enact and doesn't want to distract from, you know, if she becomes the story, then it's not about what she's doing. It's about her. And that's, I feel like for a number of reasons, not what she wants. She wants to further her cause and she also wants to keep her private life private. Um, it seems the sort of way that the, um, Rumsey Perkins relationship is described that they were intimate. Uh, they certainly lived together for the last year or so of Rumsey's life in Washington once Perkins moves down to uh, be in the cabinet. But it's, you know, sort of an open question. And they meet because of their sort of activism in part, which I think is really fantastic. And Perkins will move back to, to after she's done in Washington, she'll move back to New York. Her husband dies in the 50s, still institutionalized. And actually her daughter started to display sort of symptoms of the same mental illness towards the end of her daughter's life. She writes a memoir at one point and is going to move to Maine at the end of her life. She's buried in Maine. Uh, she dies at 85. Can you imagine that? That's so crazy to me. Um, and Frances Perkins is so one, so much one of the most important people in American history that no one really knows a whole lot about because it, she was, she wanted to let her work speak for her, I think, and didn't want to distract from it. And she just got so many things done that's really important to labor, to the dignity of work, to just the way that we view workers in this country. To keeping workers safe. I mean, it's 
easy to take that for granted, but how little workplace safety existed in the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, into the 40s. I mean, and we have so much to thank Francis Perkins for, for really codifying into law what we would think of as common sense safety standards and common sense work standards. And it's worth mentioning that like all the worker protections that exist from eight hour workday and a weekend to minimum wage to the OSHA's offer the safety and health administration pamphlets that you have to read when you start working like all of that is because of the labor movement that's all been fought for and in a lot of cases died for i think it's really says a lot about fdr who champions her from the get-go and really sort of sticks close to her side and probably when it would have been easier for him politically to distance himself very rarely does so uh in 12 years he really kind of stands toe-to-toe with the labor movement not entirely but pretty close and i feel like that's not only a testament to the partnership that they forged together but the way that he values And for someone of his class, the way that he values the dignity of work, I think is really impressive. And it's one of the reasons that FDR actually is one of my favorite presidents, because he just is someone who you wouldn't expect that from. And he really does take this to heart. Absolutely. I want to mention that like Perkins, while definitely not a figure we talk about a lot, has been embroiled indirectly in a little bit of a controversy in Maine. So Perkins, like you mentioned, kind of retires to Maine, lives out her life in Maine. That's where her parents were from. So she has a connection. And the Maine Department of Labor uh, had a mural painted in their department headquarters that depicts Perkins, right? first female secretary of labor, important member of the labor movement with a good connection to Maine. And that mural was in the Department of Labor headquarters for many, many, many years, for decades. And then in 2011, the governor, the then governor of Maine, Paul LePage, ordered the mural to be removed. They cited complaints, although they couldn't provide a lot of evidence of who the complaints were from, except for an anonymous fax that was sent, this was 2011, I guess people were still using faxes, that said that murals are reminiscent of communist North Korea, where they are used to brainwash the masses. So this mural, one of the few sort of public representations of Francis Perkins anywhere, but one of the few certainly in Maine was taken down uh, and removed as well as uh, the uh, conference room that bears her name was removed as well. So her name was taken off there. Um, Luckily, there was a lawsuit to basically make sure that the mural stayed intact and to preserve and care for the mural. Right now, the mural is in the Maine State Museum, just sort of their state museum, library, and archive building. And they are hoping, the Department of Labor hopes to restore it to their headquarters someday. But I think it's, it's interesting knowing what Perkins worked on in her lifetime, knowing what she advocated for, that this mural of her would seem to be so radical or revolutionary. Um, so I, I was digging in to do some research for this podcast. I came across this. My husband's from Maine, so I have like a little bit more interest in what goes on in Maine than I used to. But she's not somebody, because she spent so much of her life trying to not make waves. She wanted to make reform, but as a person, she wasn't interested in being a radical. She wasn't interested in upsetting the natural order of things. She very much wanted to do things quietly. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from Perkins is, I tried to have as much of a mask as possible. I wanted to give the impression of being a quiet, orderly woman who didn't buzz all the time. I just proceeded on the theory that this was a gentleman's conversation on the porch of a golf club, and you didn't butt in with bright ideas. 
so that, you know, anytime she was so careful about how she got the work done, and then to have this tribute to her in the Department of Labor headquarters in Maine be taken out um, and sort of this act of political whatever nonsense, uh, it's just really frustrating. And as somebody who advocates often for representations of women in public spaces, we study our history for good or for bad through things like statues and portraits and murals and building names. And when you take a woman away from that, you're taking away an understanding of that history. So I just couldn't let this episode go by without mentioning this weird sort of thing that's still hanging in Maine, that this mural has not been restored. It's kind of in this museum. Maybe it will stay there forever. Who knows? but it's kind of kind of unusual the timing of that seems suspicious to me that's all i want to say about former maine governor paula page for today Fritz burgers she has a building in dc named after her the labor department in washington is named for her it's like two blocks from the capitol and it is an ugly building in my opinion but she didn't have anything to do with how the building was created but it is named after her which is really great francis perkins department of labor There's another really great kind of place to find some Frances Perkins history, and that's the Whittemore House. The Whittemore House is just a couple blocks off of DuPont Circle. It was the home of opera singer Sarah Whittemore, but becomes the Women's National Democratic Club headquarters, which it still is today. It's a really incredible space for women's history. They have portraits and sculptures of really important women from the 20th century, women of kind of all walks. Um, They, in the before times, hosted lots of events and, and lectures and things on site. Obviously, a lot of that is virtual, but if you go to the Whittemore House and tour it when it reopens, you go upstairs, there's a library. This library is um, the Eleanor Roosevelt Library because Eleanor Roosevelt would go to the Whittemore House and she would do her radio addresses from that room. Uh, So Eleanor Roosevelt did a syndicated radio show essentially where she was doing radio addresses sometimes daily um, and she did that from the Whittemore house but inside the Eleanor Roosevelt library today at the Whittemore house they have a bunch of stuff from Frances Perkins estate she uh, saved things in her estate to be given to the women's national democratic club including the desk she used while she was secretary of labor Um, there are little busts and things of like FDR and Eleanor these were gifts um, from Roosevelt to her so we actually have all of that on the mantle there Um, So when you're walking in the library, um, it's named for Eleanor Roosevelt and she spent time there, but much of what you're seeing in that room is actually from the Francis Perkins estate and seeing the desk, I had a chance to go in and and get up close to it not too long ago and it it was special. It was really cool to get to be up close to her desk and see where she did all that work and she made so much important change happen. And it's a great little hidden gem. Um, If you are in the DuPont Circle area, it's truly like two blocks off the circle. You'll notice it because it has the Democratic donkey right out front. I love that. And her the pop culture reference for Frances Perkins, I guess, this, I don't know if this is, uh, this isn't recent pop culture, guys, but. It's recent to me. It's important pop culture. It's important. Me. Yes. But not recent. Uh, she, so everyone has seen the movie Dirty Dancing because you're in the world. And at the very beginning, the main character, Baby, says that her real name is Frances, and she's named after the first woman to serve in cabinet, Frances Perkins. So there you she's go. She's Frances Baby Houseman. Nobody puts Frances in the corner. <laughs> um that definitely, I'm not going to say that's the first time I'd ever heard of Frances Perkins, but it was definitely like one of those references. Uh, I have watched Dirty Dancing a bajillion times in my life. It's by far one of my favorite movies. I'm just the right age for that. But just being like, oh my gosh, she's named for Frances Perkins. It was legitimately the first time I'd ever heard of Frances Perkins. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was a kid when it came out. I remember it coming out because I'm old. I'm an old person now. Um, yes. But yes, I remember that very well. 
But that's Frances Perkins and the sort of part of the labor movement. Labor history is really important. And Frances Perkins is so important in the development of the labor movement. And I just, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire is insanely important. And it's all, I've been looking forward to talking about this all for a long time. So this has been really fun. We are definitely going to talk more labor history as we head into the the second year of this podcast. So be prepared. So that is Frances Perkins. That's the the last episode of our Women's History Month series. However, uh, you know our dedication here at Tour Guide Tell All to share all aspects of history. So you'll definitely be hearing more about incredible women. uh, So don't worry. Uh, We just want to thank you guys so much for being listeners, being there, supporting us. You can always connect with us online. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All and at Twitter at Tour Guide Tell. Send us your thoughts, your suggestions, pitch the pod. We love ideas. We're really crafting into the spring and summer right now. So if you have topics you want us to talk about, things we've touched on, previous episodes you want to know more about, let us know. For our patrons, you can also always pitch us because we do special patron-only episodes as well. And if there's a topic you'd like us to go more in depth on, a patron-only mini episode is always a good option for that. You can also email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love your emails. Anytime anyone emails us, um, it we just like geek out over it and it makes us really happy. So thank you to our wonderful listeners and our wonderful supporters who reach out through social media or through email. Yes. Thank you so very much for supporting us and for enjoying our uh, women's history. And we will be back with you next week with another really great story. That I'm... It's oh going to be April Fool's. And we're going to tell you about a real, a real oh, fool. Yeah. <laughs> fool's one word for him. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Torgai Tell All. Until next time.